So last week we started a series called Abide. And it's not a word we use a lot, but it really has a simple, pretty simple um, definition. To abide is just to hang out with somebody. And so when we talk about abiding with God, that just means that we're in a close kind of relationship with Him and a fellowship with Him. And so, um, and we, we learned last week, last week was the first in the series, that if we get close to God, the closer we get, the better we are at doing these things, the fruit of the Spirit, or it just sort of naturally comes about. And so these are a couple verses, kind of everybody knows if you've been in church very long, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But a lot of the messages I heard growing up about these, this fruit of the Spirit was you've got to try harder, you've got to love more, you've got to you know, try harder to do these things. And what we're discovering in this series is the closer we get to God, the easier it is for this to be produced. So we used the illustration last week. If I plant a tomato plant, and if I give the plant enough water and the right soil and enough sunshine, it will produce tomatoes. It just will. If we can keep the bugs off of it and that kind of thing. If we put it in the right environment, it will produce. And so it is with love, joy, peace, patience, etc. If we are in the right environment... Uh, will produce in our lives, if we are in Christ, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things will happen in our lives. And the closer we are to God, the more it happens, and the, the greater the harvest of these things in our lives. Now, the, I think the reason that love is first in the list is because it's foundational. Um, kind of everything else builds off of love. And so it's really important for us to grasp what it means to love. And there's been research done around this. Uh, researchers have found, you know, you need shelter and you need clothing and you need uh, food. And after that, you need love. Everybody needs love. Purdue University did a study, and you wonder, don't you ever wonder, it's like, why are they doing that? They did a study on pigs and their need for affection. And they found, guess what? That pigs need affection. That's what they found. Really kind of interesting to me. And so if they're isolated or they're denied play with one another, they don't flourish. And so this research found its way to Germany. Um, and Germans, um, by, by reputation, aren't noted to be romantics and that kind of thing. But the German uh, council uh, consulted the German farmers and they told them that each of their pigs, if you're a pig farmer in Germany, uh, they uh, advised them to give each pig at least 20 seconds of physical affection every day. Can you imagine the bumper sticker? Have you hugged your pig today? I mean, and so, uh, uh, but if pigs need affection, can you imagine what it's like for people who are complex like us, like, a, like, like folks, uh, like people? Uh, how much more so that we need affection. And so there have been literally hundreds of thousands of books written about affection, about love. Uh, some of the better ones, there's one called Crazy Love. It's, if, you, you know, if you want a, a really, really good one, uh, Francis Chan wrote that. I just really like that. Uh, Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman is really, really good. There's one called Love Does by Bob Goff. These are really good books. And so 
the notion around love for us is if I can figure out what is attractive, then I'll do that and people will love me. We start that really early on in our lives. I mean, like when we're, when we're infants, we figure out what does it take for people to love me, and I'll do that. And so um, th- there are some books written around that too. I-, I saw some that were kind of really interesting to me. Let me read a couple of them, and then I have some I, have some I can show you. Um, one of them was, How to Be So Irresistible You'll Barely Keep From Dating Yourself. Now that, that is a title. It's really good. My favorite one, if you can't live without me, why aren't you dead yet? I, I love that one. It's kind of my favorite. Um, all right, now this, I'm going to give you a quiz. How much do you think this book title, this book costs? Okay, the book title is Dating for Under a Dollar. What do you think that cost? $18.98. Uh, it costs you $19 to figure out how to date for under a dollar. Now, um, some of the books, I, I, here are a couple of titles I, I just found really, really interesting. Um, how to Be the Girl Who Gets the Guy, and then the, the subtitle is How Confident and Self-Assured Women Handle Dating with Class and Sass. I mean, that's just awesome. Uh, maybe my favorite book title of all time, uh, Everything I Know About Women I Learned from My Tractor. I, I think that is, that's gold. Uh, I'm sorry. Now, if you're a young man in this room, the next is a, a series of books that you might consider if you're unattached. Uh, it might be interesting to you. Um, this is How to Marry a Ukrainian Supermodel. Seven volumes. If it takes seven volumes to get her, how, long, how much do you think it's going to take to keep her? I mean, just, I'm just saying. So, but that one I, I found interesting. It's a seven-volume series. But now this next one is uber sad to me, and I don't, we're not going to laugh about this one because it is sad, but the title is How to Not Die Alone. Isn't that sad? And people are starved for love. We live in a world where we're told, you know, um, love is about emotion or love is about this or that. And look, we're going to see in just a second, love is about how we behave, how we act with one another. And so we're, we're constantly trying to figure out what does it take for me to be attractive? Have you ever seen anyone out or on television and they have a certain look and you say to yourself, wow, that's, that's unappealing to me. But for somebody, they figured out that that for them is appealing to the people they're trying to appeal to. And so whether it be, you know... I, I hate to say anything because I don't, I don't want to really cast dispersions on anybody, but a certain hairstyle or a certain uh, way of dress, we would say, I, that's, I don't like that. I don't like that. But somebody likes that. They've figured out, at least in their mind, they figured out this is going to be, this is going to attract the people that I want to attract. There was a, a survey done of unattached young Christian people, and they asked them, what are you looking for uh, in a mate? What are you looking for? And so they ask unattached Christian women, and they had a list. The list goes like this. They're looking for men who are tall, well-mannered, gentlemanly. They listen with sincerity. They're honest, generous, thoughtful, great dancers, good-looking, godly. They love children. They open doors. They're humble, kind, muscular, and they drive a nice car. That's kind of, if you can get that package, uh, that's good. Um, Unattached Christian men, their list was a bit shorter uh, anyone who will go out with me. So it's a little different, a little bit different. But, but the, the whole idea is, okay, I'm looking for 
someone who will love me. So today we're going to talk about the truth about God's love. And so many people believe it's something that you earn. Now we know it's not, you know, uh, tall, dark, handsome, that kind of thing. It's, that's not what, earn God, what earn, earns God's love. But we, we sort of figure there's got to be something. Now, we were in Salt Lake City a couple of weeks ago, some of us on a mission trip, and there's a whole religion based around uh, what do I do to win God's favor. But the Mormons aren't the only ones that think that way. I mean, I, I grew up Baptist. We had an idea. Nobody, I don't think, ever taught it like, hey, this is what's going to win God's favor. But, but we, if you're in church long enough, you figure it out. All right, God wants me, you know, I'm not going to smoke or chew or go with girls that do. You know, I'm not going to cuss. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to go to church. We sort of have this list. And we're thinking to ourselves, if I do these things, that will make me lovable to God. Now, for some denominations, it's I have to work and do certain things. Uh, in the Mormon church, there's a lot, of, a lot about works, and there are other denominations where it's a lot about works. I have to uh, do a certain amount of, of activities, and if I do these activities, certain activities, if I'm baptized or if I'm um, uh, this or that, if I do these things, God it has to love me. And what's really interesting about God is, if you look at Scripture, there's a truth that kind of comes to the surface, and that is, God is really attracted to weakness. Like, Paul one time said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And God seems to be, He seems to gravitate to people who are really messed up to do great things. Let me give you some examples. You know the patriarchs of the Old Testament, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let me tell you about those guys. Abraham was chosen by God to be sort of the, the leader of his people when he was really old. And then uh, God said, you're going to have a child. And Abraham decided, well, that's not going to happen with my wife because she's also really old. So uh, he has uh, relations with another woman and they have a child. And then uh, he eventually has a child with his wife. And so he's got kind of two wives or he has a wife and a concubine or I don't know. He, that's just the whole, the whole thing's messed up. And not only that, but he, uh, he, they move to a country and he's afraid that uh, he's going to be killed because his wife is attractive. So he says, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And uh, this woman who is his wife is then taken into uh, the king's harem. And eventually it's found out, no, that's his wife. And uh, I mean, that, it's not like Abraham was pristine in his actions. His son Isaac must have been watching Isaac was, he showed an ungodly favoritism over one son over the other. He uh, really doesn't lead his family well. Um, he's also known to be one who doesn't tell the truth. His son Jacob uh, is known, uh, known uh, he had four wives. He had lots of kids, he had four wives. He uh, often was lying and cheating. In fact, he was known as a liar and a cheater. Then you have Moses. I mean, Moses is the guy that delivered God's people out of Egypt. Well, Moses murdered somebody, and then he hid the body in the sand, and then it was discovered, and he was a fugitive. And then God calls him, and Moses says, I can't speak very well. I have a speech impediment. And yet God used him to deliver the nation of Israel out 
of Egypt. There's a woman in this whole process by the name of Rahab. She was a harlot. And if you don't know what that is, that means she was a prostitute. And in her life, and you have to understand, women in ancient times had very few choices. didn't have lots of choices in what they could do. You were either married, um, you lived with your dad, or you were a prostitute. These are pretty much your options. And so Rahab was a prostitute, and yet God used her to deliver, help deliver his people uh, out of uh, Egypt into the promised land. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, her name finds its way into the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. God seems to gravitate toward people who are weak. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is about a guy named Gideon. Uh, Gideon is a scaredy cat. He is a scaredy cat. I mean, he... He is the most reluctant leader I have ever seen. He doesn't really want to lead. He is you know, kind of the least on the totem pole of people that uh, could lead. And yet God chooses him. And God, he has this big army and God whittles it down to 300 people. And then they still defeat because it has to be about God. And Gideon is somehow used by God. David is considered a man after God's own heart. That guy was messed up. He committed adultery. Then to hide his sin, he had his uh, mistress's uh, husband killed in battle. He just put him, he basically murdered him. He uh, took a census one time when he was specifically and explicitly told not to, and it cost the lives of tens of thousands of Israelites. He did lots of bad things, and yet he is considered in Scripture a man after God's own heart. God gravitates toward the weak. Just kind of an amazing thing. It's a guy named Zacchaeus. You know him. He was vertically challenged. He was a tax collector. Nobody liked him, and yet God chose him. Mary Magdalene was possessed by demons. Peter was an inconsistent loudmouth. James and John were called the sons of thunder basically because they had a hot temper and they didn't know how to control it. And then you had a guy named Paul who did great things, but he, at the beginning, was a religious terrorist all you can say about him and he writes this about himself he says this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it christ came into the world to save sinners and i am the worst of them all god has a tendency to gravitate toward weakness and so if you want to know what god is looking for in a follower it's someone basically who will admit i am weak i'm weak that's who he really, really loves. And if we will admit this, God, I know I can't do this on my own, but I need your help. Those are the people that God uses. We have these odd ideas around love. I pastored a church in Bergen, Kentucky many years ago. And Bergen is a little bitty town. It wasn't a very big church. And there was this one particular couple I really kind of noted. They were probably married over 50 years. They, they were a little older. You know, they're quite a bit older. And they always held hands. I thought, that's so sweet. Always holding hands. And so they'd hold hands. And you'd see them coming in holding hands. And then they'd sit in their pew and they'd hold hands. And, and one time I just I was like... I went up to the wife and I said, you all are an inspiration. I can't, you know, to be uh, married as long as you are and you still hold hands, it's so sweet. And she said, preacher, we ain't holding hands because we ain't love. We're holding hands because I don't want him to crack his knuckles. Uh, so it wasn't quite as... But we, we get this idea around what does love look like, right? And you all probably all know the name Helen Keller. Helen Keller was a woman who uh, wasn't born uh, deaf and blind, but uh, because of a, a medical um, 
problem when she was young. She was given the wrong medicine. She became uh, deaf and, and blind. And uh, just before her seventh birthday, she got a teacher, a woman by the name of Ann Sullivan. And if you've ever watched the movie The Miracle Worker, uh, it's a great movie. And it shows their friendship. And in the process of teaching uh, Helen, uh, what Ann Sullivan would do is she would like let her play with a doll, and then after she had played with the doll, she would spell the word doll in her hand. And eventually, uh, Helen Keller talks about the light switch kind of came on, and she figured out, oh, she's spelling for me what I've just played with. And so uh, she did that with water. And one time, Ann Sullivan spelled the word love in Helen Keller's hands, and she didn't know what it was. And she said, what is love? Now, think about trying to explain to someone who can't see or hear what love is. I mean, honestly, if you were pressed right this second, if I were to say to you, define love, how would you do it? There are definitions. In the dictionary, love is defined as a noun. As a noun, it's defined as an intense feeling of deep affection. As a verb, it's defined as to feel a deep romantic or sexual attract, uh, attachment. But the Bible says about love, it's much more than emotion or feeling. In fact, Paul writes, Owe nothing to anyone except your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you'll fulfill the requirements of God's law. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Which brings me to the second point. We don't earn God's love. But to God, love is something that you do. In the most known verse in Scripture, John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world, He did something. He gave. He did. Loving and doing go together. Jesus also said this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. And the key part of that verse is, As I have loved you, Jesus loves everybody. For God so loved the world. He loves us all. And when Jesus commands us to love, He's not commanding us to an emotion or a feeling. He's commanding us to an action. Love does something. You understand this. Anybody that has a mother or father that they love or anyone that has a spouse that they love, you understand that love causes you to do things. I make a trip home to Kentucky to change the furnace filter for my mother because I love her. I, I, I want to do something for her. I do that because that's something I can do for her. It's what love does. Love does. This, this is kind of how it works. And so, if you've ever been to a wedding, it's likely that you've heard 1 Corinthians 13. It's called the love chapter. And all of these are things that you do. Love is patient. Patience isn't a feeling or an emotion. It's something you do. You are patient. Sometimes, in fact, you don't feel like being patient, and you're patient anyway, because love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not, it does not dishonor others. Sometimes it says it's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always Trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love does things. 
just how it works. And in the concept of love, we have to understand it doesn't particularly come naturally to us. Um, There's a guy by the name of James Cox. He writes this, and I think it's very insightful. True love causes pain, and we by nature avoid pain. True love requires sacrifice, and we by nature (laughs) avoid sacrifice. True love demands unconditional commitment, and we by nature steer clear of commitment. See, apart from Christ in our lives, it's difficult to love the way God wants us to. That's why I think it says the Holy Spirit produces this in us. When we become followers of Christ, the closer we get to Him, it's not natural, but we learn how to love. John put it this way, Let us love one another, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. I don't know about any of you, but here's what I've noticed about myself. I, on occasion, have a tendency to act out from my sin nature. I have a nature that is inclined to sin. I've been around some of you, and you might have this too. Okay, it's pretty, pretty likely. That we, in fact, the Bible says we all have this sin nature. We have a natural tendency to gravitate towards selfishness and all those things that uh, 1 Corinthians 13 said we're not supposed to be, or you know, love isn't. So, I, I know, and it's easier for me, I know like when I'm tired is when I usually you know, do things I don't want to do. My sin nature kind of rears its head up. But there's a nature in us that's inclined to not be loving. It reminds me of the story, uh, this guy went to the zoo, and, and at the zoo there was this display, and the display was of, uh, it had a lion and a monkey in the same cage. And the zookeeper happened to be out one day, and he said, man, I, that, that's, a, that's remarkable. There's a lion and a monkey in the same cage. How does that work out? And his, he said, well, it's okay usually, but sometimes they have, a, they have a disagreement. And then we have to get another monkey. Because in our lives, we have this tendency, we're, we can be okay sometimes, but if we're not careful, if we just go how, by how we feel, then you're going to need a big supply of monkeys. I mean, it's just going to ha- that's how it works. And so, this isn't about trying harder to love. This is about understanding how God loves. And if I'm going to be His child, then I'm going to love the way He loves. Because here's the truth. To abide in God's love, you have to be quiet and you have to listen. And we are prone to do neither Do you know that men speak on average every day 20,000 words? Women on average every day speak about 30,000 words. Um, (laughs) Funny. Uh, um, It it is kind of funny. Um, The average American will have 30 conversations a day. Uh, if every conversation was written, written down, uh, we could fill a volume in a year. In, in a year, we would fill 66 volumes, 800 pages uh, thick. Uh, we talk a lot. Talking, there's nothing wrong with it unless you're talking when you should be listening. And sometimes God is speaking to us and we have to be quiet so He can have opportunity to talk to us. It's really kind of important. And so, in Ze- Zephaniah, there's this really cool verse. Uh, you know... 
Sometimes you, you come across a verse and you go, man, I don't remember ever reading that before. Oh, I like this one. The Lord your God is with you, he says. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that a beautiful idea? That God rejoices over us with singing? I was in the room when all four of our daughters were born. Um, before they were born, Miriam was kind of loud. I had to turn the TV up. But uh, I was in the room because I wanted to be there for her. And uh, love does, that's what I'm saying. And, and the, I don't know if you've ever been in the room when a child was born, but I'm going to let you in on a little something. When they come out, they're a little um, slippery, a little gooey. And I remember those little girls being born, and they're all messy. And the first thing I did, I don't know if you all do this, I counted toes and fingers. All my girls had hair. It was matted down, looked like Elvis. Uh, had hair. And, and I remember thinking to myself, I sure hope they clean that up before they hand it to me. I mean, it's like, good grief. I don't want to drop it, you know. Uh, and I don't want it to get on my shirt. And so, now, those girls came out. They had never done anything to warrant love. They, mine were attractive, but I've seen some of y'all's kids, and you know, but mine were really cute. But still, it's like they're kind of cute, but they're slippery and and. The moment they're there, though they've done nothing <laughs> to warrant love, minutes, seconds old, you already love them. And so when I see a verse like this that says, He delights in you, he will quiet you with His love. It sounds like a baby, right? You quiet them. You want them to settle. He will rejoice over you with singing. Have you ever been around a mother who sings a lullaby to her child? This is the picture, I think, that Zephaniah is painting. This is the way God loves you. And it's unshakable. In fact, <laughs> Isaiah says about God's love, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. And I got to thinking about love and why you love people. Sometimes you love people because somebody else loves them. My daughters, they've brought a couple of boys home that, you know, I've got two daughters that are married and they bring these boys home. And dads are protective, it's just how we are, with our daughters especially. And they would bring these boys home, and sometimes I didn't like them. Now the two sons-in-law that I have, I like a lot. But there were some before that, boys, that came in, and I didn't like them that much. Um, didn't want to have a lot of time with them. However, because I loved the person that loved them, I loved them. Sometimes you love somebody because somebody that you love loves somebody. Does that make sense? Which leads me to the last point 
To abide in God's love, you have to obey. You have to do what God says. Jesus said this. He said, all who love me will do what I say. He said, when you obey my commandments, you abide in my love. That is what we are looking for, to be ones who abide in his love. And then he said, love each other as I have loved you. Have you ever noticed some people are harder to love than others? Don't point. Uh, But uh, the question would be, yeah, uh, uh, are there any difficult people to love in your life? I mean, there probably are. It might be where you work. It might be where you live. It could be in your home. It could be at your job. It could be at school. And sometimes God puts difficult people in our lives, and we love them Not because we love them, but we love them because God loves them. We love the person that loves them, and so we're going to love them too. I want to read a little story to you about a brown paper bag. It's by a guy named Robert Fulgham, and he writes this. He has a daughter who's seven years old, just about seven, and her name is Molly, and he writes this. Molly became an enthusiastic participant in the morning packing of lunches for herself, her brothers, and for me. Each bag got a share of a sandwich, apples, milk money, and some, sometimes a note or a treat. One morning, Molly handed me two paper bags, a regular sack lunch and another with staples and paper clips. Why two bags, I ask? The other one is something else. What is it? Just some stuff to take with you. Crammed both sacks in my briefcase, kissed her, and rushed off. Midday, while hurriedly scarfing down my lunch, I tore open Molly's second bag and shook out the contents. Two hair ribbons, three small stones, a plastic dinosaur, a pencil stub, a tiny seashell, two animal crackers, a marble, a used lipstick, a small doll, two Hershey's Kisses, and 13 pennies. I smiled. How charming. Rising to hustle off to my important business meeting for the afternoon, I swept the desk clean, into the basket went my leftover lunch and Molly's junk. Wasn't really any need for it. That evening, however, Molly stood beside me as I (laughs) uh, read the news, and she asked, where's my bag? Uh, I left it at at the office. Why? I forgot to put this note in it, she said. Besides, I want it back. (laughs) Why would you want that back? Those are my things in the sack, Daddy, and the ones I really like. I thought you might like to play with them too, but now I I want them back again. You didn't lose the bag, did you? And then tears began to puddle in her eyes. Oh no, I lied. (laughs) I just forgot to bring it home. Bring it tomorrow, okay? Sure thing, don't worry, I said to her. And she hugged my neck with relief, and I unfolded the note that she had given me, which said, I love you, Daddy. Best words ever spoken. I looked long at the face of my child. Molly had given me her treasures, all that a seven-year-old held dear, love in a paper sack. And not only had I missed it, I had thrown it in the wastebasket. It was a long trip back to the office that evening, but there was nothing else to be done. Just ahead of the janitor, I picked up the wastebasket and poured the contents onto my desk. 
And after washing the mustard off the dinosaur and spraying everything with breath freshener to kill the onion smell, I carefully smoothed out the wadded ball of brown paper into a semi-functioning bag, put the treasure inside and carried it home gingerly as if I was carrying home an injured kitten. The next evening I returned it to Molly, no explanation offered. The bag didn't look so good, but the stuff was all there, and that's what counted. After dinner, I asked her to tell me about what was in the sack, and she took every object out and placed it in a row on the dining room table. It took a long time to tell. Everything had a story. Fairies had brought some of the things. I had given her the Hershey's kisses, which she kept for when she needed them. I managed to say, I see, very wisely several times in the telling. And in fact, I did see. To my surprise, Molly gave me the bag once again a couple of days later. Same ratty bag, same stuff inside. I felt forgiven and trusted and loved. And when I read that story, I think about the fact that God has given us responsibility to take care of some of the stuff He really loves. The souls of people around us. People who might not look like us or think like us or act like us are still loved by God. And when Jesus says, love each other as I've loved you, He means it. His love for us, even in our weakness. And think about this. I'm a dad. When my girls are struggling, that is the time I want to be with them most. When they're the weakest is when I want to help them and be around them most. And sometimes we are the hands and feet of God in the lives of people who are just weak and struggling. And so as we close today, we're not going to try harder to love. I think the thing to do is let's try harder to remember that God loves Everybody. God loves. And He wants us to love because He loves. Thank You, Father, for Your message today and what it means to us. Help us to be mindful of all the people around us. Help us to love the way You love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.